Well, good morning. My name is Brent. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm grateful to be able to open up God's Word with you for the second part of a two-part kind of mini-series on anchors that hold. Last week, we looked at the anchor of Scripture, and this week, we're going to be looking at the anchor of the Gospel. Before we dive in, I just want to highlight a couple of things. First, this card that's in your bulletin this morning. Uh, Perhaps these last two weeks have just been a reminder to you, especially at this point in our congregation's life, that we have anchors that hold. Uh, This is something that you can, if you'd like, stick up on your mirror, stick in your dashboard, stick somewhere that you'll see it to remind you in life and here at Lakewood that that scripture and the, the gospel are anchors that hold. And also to remind you to be praying for us as a church and for uh, God's will to continue to be done in us and that we would be obedient and faithful in following him well in the weeks and months to come. Secondly, the Q&A after second service. As a congregation, we've been dealing with some difficult circumstances the last two and a half weeks. And lunch and this Q&A is just an opportunity for us to come together as a family Enjoy some fried chicken uh, and some good stuff that I've seen coming in the fridges. I'm guessing there'll be some green jello salad somewhere in there. Uh, But enjoy that together. Enjoy a meal. And also hear from the elders about where we're at and some of the things that are coming next for us. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're just saying, "Um, I'm new. What's, What's he talking about? Our senior pastor recently uh, resigned after it was discovered that he had plagiarized some sermons. So we've taken these last weeks to address the situation a little bit more directly. And in coming weeks and then throughout the summer, we'll be using our time together to look beyond what has happened. Not to forget about it, but to look beyond it and to continue to focus on who God is worshiping him as we have done, as we have done for decades as a church together, and opening up his word and looking to it as we have done again for decades as a church together. We'll be looking beyond what has happened to continue to focus in on what we've done for 50 plus years as Lakewood on Sunday mornings as we gather. And I'm so grateful for God's word, aren't you? so thankful that we can take this time on a weekly basis to gather together and to learn from it. It's such a privilege to hold in our hands, in our own language, in an easy-to-read format, so readily accessible, God's Word. And that's what this is. This is God pulling back the curtain on himself and saying to us as humanity, I won't remain hidden from you, but I will let you know who I am. This is God reaching down to us and saying, you as humanity are powerless to come to me, but I'll come to you. And I won't remain hidden, but I'll tell you who I am and what I'm like. It is such a gift to have this comfort, this anchor, especially in times of confusion and uncertainty. It's such a wonderful thing to remember that this book has spoken to those who are following God, to His people, for thousands of years. 
that it has stood the test of time. And that when we open it on a weekly basis, we are just joining in the procession of God's people throughout the millennia who look to him, who open his word, who want to love him and follow him. One of the things I so appreciate about the Bible is that the way that it gives us a big picture and allows us to make sense of what comes our way as humans. By the big picture, I mean the answers to some of the deep questions in our lives. I think about questions like, where did we come from? Getting beyond even creation or evolution and that whole debate and mess. Look, we were created, but what does it mean to be human? When we look in the mirror in the morning and we see ourselves and we say, okay, I'm a human and how am I set apart from the rest of creation? And what does it mean? Where did I come from? And then asking the question, what went wrong? We need not look further than the headlines on a daily basis to remember that something has gone horribly wrong. Maybe it's the heartbreaking image of a dad and a young child drowned in the Rio Grande. Maybe it's international tension that seems to ratchet up by the day and by the week. And we fear that it's going to break and that it's going to start something horrible on a global scale. Maybe it's something more personal, more close to home, the troubles, the brokenness, the heartache, the hurt in our own lives that comes from any variety of sources. But it's clear to us that something is not right in the world that we live in. And we ask ourselves the question, what is it? What went wrong? And then how is that fixed? How is it set back right? We know that we need something beyond a different policy. We know that we need something beyond new laws or a new program, something beyond a different political party or even a different government as a whole. We need something beyond the UN or treaties. We need something beyond just better medicine or a new surgical procedure. Those things can be helpful, but none of those things fix what's really wrong. We're looking for a fix. We're looking for things to be made right. And we say, how's that going to happen? And we ask, where is this all going? We look at life sometimes and we say, what's the point? Is this all there is? Where's this all going? We ask these questions and we look to Scripture and we find answers. And we do that together this morning. So turn with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians 15. If you don't have a Bible, I'd encourage you to grab one from the back or pull up BibleGateway.com on your phone. But I want you to have God's Word in front of you uh, as we look through it this morning. We'll be starting in 1 Corinthians 15, but we'll be in a number of different passages as we go. And I want you to see that what I'm saying isn't just coming from me, but it's coming from God Himself and His Word. Because it's God's Word that answers these questions. It's God's word that provides an anchor for our lives at all times, but especially in times of heavy winds and rough seas. So 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 1, this is the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Corinth, and he says this, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. 
By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Let's pray together. Father, we proclaim together again this morning. We remind ourselves that you are good and that you do good. We are grateful for the ways that you meet us in our every need. We're grateful for the truth that you provide in your word. And we ask this morning that you would open our hearts afresh to what you desire to do in us that we might be strengthened as individuals, strengthened as a church family for what you would have for us. We love you, Lord. We pray this all in the strong name of Christ. Amen. As we begin, I wonder if some of you are maybe thinking to yourself, how, how is the gospel an anchor? Isn't the gospel just the basics of the faith? Isn't the gospel just the door that we walk through to get to the good stuff of theology and God's word? Isn't the gospel just the beginning? It's true that the Christian life uh, begins with understanding and accepting the good news that God has acted on our behalf to take the punishment that we deserved on himself and to restore all that was broken through the work of Christ. But it's a mistake to think that uh, we ever move beyond this truth. We don't. Tim Keller, a theologian and a pastor at Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, and basically just a rock star and a genius when it comes to understanding Scripture and helping others to do the same, he says this. He says, For a long time I understood the gospel as being just elementary truths, the doctrinal minimum requirement for entering the faith. Theology, I thought, was the advanced, meatier, deeper, biblical stuff. How wrong I was. All theology must be an exposition of the gospel, especially in the postmodern age. Keller is reminding us, and Scripture affirms, that the gospel is a firm anchor for our lives because it is, when properly understood, not the beginning of our knowledge about God, but in fact the totality of our knowledge about God. The gospel is an encapsulation of who God is, and it's what we need to remember about Him. And this is all the more true when we're shaken or hurting. This begs the question then, what is the gospel? I've given a definition already. We'll put it back up here again for you type A people. By the way, this is a benefit of coming to second service. First service didn't have the definition up here on the screen as Howie runs back to the booth to grab it. Uh, So here's a definition up on the screen so you don't have to scramble too much. Definition that I like to use is the gospel is the good news that God has acted on behalf of rebellious humanity to take punishment deserved on himself and restore all that was broken through the work of Jesus Christ. 
We'll leave that up there for a minute so you can write it if you need. But this morning I want to first connect that with what we've read out of 1 Corinthians 15. Then I want to show you uh, this understanding of the gospel uh, writ large across Scripture in kind of four acts. And then we'll talk about some specific implications of the gospel for us right now. So, 1 Corinthians 15. This passage is coming right near the end of the letter that Paul has written to the church in Corinth. Uh, The church has all sorts of problems that Paul has been addressing, all sorts of things that they've believed wrongly about that Paul has been correcting them on. And at the end, he brings them back to the gospel. And he says a couple of things about the gospel. Uh, In verse 2, he says this. He says, you're saved by it. By this gospel, you are saved. I think sometimes we take this word saved and we think about it just in a theological context or just in a a churchy sense. We think, oh yeah, I'm saved. I've been saved from my sin. That's a good thing. I think about the word saved in terms of somebody drowning. And you think how desperate somebody is when they're drowning. And that they will do anything to get above the water, to get another breath. And I think about throwing them a life buoy and having them cling to that literally for their very lives. I think about an anchor and the way that that brings salvation for a ship in a storm. And how closely the sailors would watch the anchor line to make sure that nothing happens to it. Because they know that in that is their salvation. I would encourage us to... Remember that salvation is like that. When we think about the gospel, when we think about the salvation that we have from our sins, it is no small thing, but it is something that we must cling to desperately as if our very lives depended on it because, in fact, they do. Let's hold firmly to the gospel just as Paul exhorts us to do in verse 2. And then in verse 3 he says, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Paul is saying if you miss this, if you lose this, nothing else matters. He's just given the Corinthian church a whole raft of teaching, a whole wealth of teaching. And he says, but in all of that, this is number one. This is of first importance. And what's of first importance is the gospel. And according to Paul, the gospel here is verse 3. That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. This is a historical act. This is something that really happened in real space, real time. This isn't a myth. This isn't a legend. It's not a fairy tale. It's not just an example. But Christ suffered and was crucified for our sins. Paul is assuming the fact, he's taking as foundational the truth that humanity has rebelled against God, that we've sinned, and sin deserves punishment, and Christ took that punishment. But that wasn't the end of it, and it's not the end of the gospel. Verse 4, Paul points back to, and Paul reaffirms the fact that, he, that Jesus was buried, and then that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Because the gospel isn't just about Christ taking the punishment that we deserve. The gospel is about restoration. Jesus didn't just cover the punishment. He also provides the solution of life and his resurrection 
is the confirmation of that. The things that Paul says here about the gospel align well with the story that all of Scripture tells in regards to the gospel. The true story that lays out where we came from, what went wrong, how it's fixed, and where we're all going. So I want to take a step back from Paul's kind of summary of the gospel here in 1 Corinthians 15 to look at the big picture of the gospel as it's described throughout all of Scripture As I do the template that I'm using, these four acts, so to speak, these four movements of salvation is not something that I came up with. It's uh, used in a number of books, a number of teachings, a number of sermons by many others. I would recommend as one of them this book, The Explicit Gospel. It's by Matt Chandler. We have it in our library here. And whether you are sitting here this morning saying, what is the gospel? What's this all about? What's that guy talking about? Or if you're sitting here this morning and you've been following Christ for all of your life, I would commend this book to you, The Explicit Gospel by Matt Chandler. So Act 1. Act 1 of the gospel. The gospel in four parts. Act 1 of the gospel, creation. God made it good. Now I want to just point out at the beginning that this is a step before many of our gospel uh, explanations begin. I don't know how many of you might be familiar with the wordless book or familiar with the bridge illustration of the gospel. Uh, A lot of those begin not with creation, but they begin with what? Our sin. That's right. You guys got it. You can participate. It's okay. Begins with our sin. The bridge illustration starts with, okay, we've got humanity on one side and God on the other side, and there's sin, this chasm in the middle. Oftentimes the wordless book starts with a dark page or maybe if you've got the bracelet, a dark bead saying that because of sin, we as humanity, uh, our hearts have grown dark. That's true. Sin is absolutely a part of the picture. The thing is, Scripture doesn't start with sin. Scripture starts before that. Scripture starts with creation. And when we turn to Genesis 1, you can turn there now if you would like. We're going to be in Genesis for a little bit here. Uh, When you turn to Genesis 1, you see, first of all, that God created all things. And throughout the account of God's creation, we see this refrain. We hear this refrain. God created X, and he saw that it was good. And then at the end of chapter 1, Genesis 1, verse 31, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. The story of our salvation begins with the fact that God made everything, and he made it good. This reminds us of two things. It reminds us that our creator is a good God. We can learn things about God from looking at what He has created. The problem is, when we look at what He has created, we don't see it in its original state. It's a little bit like if you took uh, a pot that somebody had made and you tried to judge the work of the potter on how the pot looked after it had been broken and tried to be kind of reassembled. You wouldn't be able to judge the work of the potter accurately. In the same way, when we look back to Genesis 1, when we look back to creation as a whole, we recognize that God created everything good. So creation points to God as a good, perfect creator. Even though we don't see that now. Because it's been broken and marred by our sin. 
The second thing that we remember when we look back at the goodness of creation is how far we have fallen. Hear me, friends. We cannot imagine what life was like for Adam and Eve before sin. It is beyond our comprehension what it would be like to live in that state of perfection. No sickness, not even an awareness that sickness could exist. No brokenness, no strife, not even a recognition that things could go sideways in interpersonal relationships. We can't imagine what it was like. So when we look back on the creation that was created good, we remember how far we've fallen. And we have fallen far. The second act, sin broke everything. Sin broke everything. I'd like to read now from Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 6. A profoundly sad section of Scripture. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and the wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the, Lord, of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I, I heard you were in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman you, you put me here with, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The freedom and vulnerability that, vulnerability, vulnerability that Adam and Eve enjoyed with each other in verse Chapter 2, verse 25, is replaced with shame and confusion. As they clumsily try to sew together some fig leaves to cover themselves up, probably not even sure why they are doing it. The open conversation that they had enjoyed with their Creator God is replaced by hiding like little children futilely behind some bushes, thinking maybe He won't see. And ultimately, they are banished from the garden and from the tree of life in verses 23 and 24. And ever since then, human existence has been marked with pain and with grief from our sin. Now, I want to just take a quick excursus here, a little side note, just to say that I say human existence has been marked with pain and grief from our sin. I, I speak of that collectively. I am not saying this morning that if you got a diagnosis that's unfavorable or if financial 
harm has come to you or some other bad thing has happened that is because of some specific sin that you did in your life. I am not saying that because of X sin, God gave you Y punishment. What I am saying is that collectively, as humanity, the fact that pain and brokenness mark our existence is directly related to the sin of humanity throughout all time. All suffering is a result of all sin. And it's not just us as humanity that's suffering. Creation as a whole has been subjected to frustration. Romans 8, chapter 18 and following make it clear that creation uh, is subjected to this decay and it's in bondage to this decay and it can't get out of it. Things are falling apart and we can't stop it. And here's the other thing about our sin. It brings not only pain and grief but also punishment. We deserve as humanity and as individuals, punishment for disobeying God. We deserve God's wrath for our sin. He is perfectly just, and He is right to be angry about our disobedience. We don't always like to hear that, but when we hear of somebody who has done something horrible on the news and when we think about uh, the things that are done to children or to innocent people, we get angry, right? And we want to see justice served. We want to see it made right. So how much more when we with an imperfect picture and we who will never be perfectly just, who will never determine accurately to the fullest extent what needs to happen, how much more would God, who knows all, who is 100% just, 100% righteous, how much more right is it that he would be angry about sin and that he would subject to his wrath those who would disobey him? Maybe you're saying, come on, Brent, that's Old Testament. Now we're in the New Testament. We've got Jesus here. It, the wrath is gone. The love, the love has come. Yes, for those who are in Christ, the wrath of God need not be feared. But at the same time, we must remember that God is the same throughout all of Scripture. John chapter 3, the same chapter in which we have the wonderful truth, for God so loved the world. John chapter 3, 36 says this, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life for God's wrath remains on them. Because of sin, we need a Savior. And praise God, we have one. Act three of the gospel narrative, salvation. Belief brings life. Belief brings life. There are so many passages in Scripture that I would love to go to this morning to just let us rejoice in the fact that belief in Jesus Christ brings life. We don't have time to hit a tenth of them. So we're just going to camp in on one, uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 10. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 10. Turn there with me if you'd like. I'm going to read uh, starting in verse 1 of Ephesians 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us uh, also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. 
Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved. Through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. I just want to highlight a couple of things in this passage. First, verse 3, all of us are deserving of wrath, because all of us have disobeyed God. But verse 4, God doesn't look at us in that wrath. He looks at us instead in love. And then in verse 5, we see that that love has transferred us from death to life. That love has brought us salvation in what Christ has done. And this salvation, verses 8 and 9, make crystal clear, is not by grace and not by works. We cannot earn the salvation that we so desperately need. This abolishes the good outweighs the bad theory of salvation. This marks as foolishness the idea that when we come to the end of our lives and stand before God in judgment, that we could say, well, I think I kind of did more good stuff than I did bad stuff, so let's call it even and I can come in, huh? foolishness, but a foolishness that we run to as humans time and time and time and time again. It is by grace that we have been saved. We do not deserve the salvation won for us at the cross. And it is through faith. Salvation is a gift given to those who believe. So the question this morning is, do you believe? Have you trusted in Christ for your salvation? Have you come to Jesus, repented of your sins, acknowledged the fact that you have lived in rebellion against Him, and committed to make Him the Lord of your life, and to follow Him for all of your days? Have you done that? Do you trust in Christ for salvation. Salvation is, yes, by grace, but it is also through faith. And even that faith is grace. So come to Christ if you have not. Trust Him. Believe in Him. If not, you are still under wrath. Believe today. Repent today. When we believe the punishment for our sin is borne by Christ on the cross, His righteousness is credited to our account. And we're made new. And that leads us to act four, glorification. The fact that God will make all things new. The gospel is, yes, uh, absolutely about the salvation of individual souls, but the gospel is not just about the salvation of souls. The gospel is about the fact that God will restore all that was broken to better than it was at original creation. 
This begins at the resurrection. The resurrection is an example of this restoration that God will bring. 1 Corinthians 15, the passage we were in earlier, later on in that chapter, verse 23, makes it crystal clear that the resurrection of Christ is the first fruits, is an example of the restoration that is going to come to all things and all who are in Christ. In Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 5, is... um, Scripture that talks exactly about that. John writes this, he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. There will come a day when all is set right. When not only sin, but sickness and pain and death are undone at the word of God. There will come a day when God himself will come down and be with us. And his dwelling place will be among his people. There will come a day when God himself wipes every tear from our eyes and declares, I am making all things new. It can seem so far off, can't it? It can seem so impossible, so unbelievable. I love in verse 5 that after the one who is seated on the throne says, I am making everything new. He says this, then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. God has said it. It will come to pass. God will make all things new. And this truth gives us hope. It's an anchor. It allows us to persevere. Friends, we need this gospel. This truth is an anchor from our soul. And far from trying to look beyond it right now to something else, something more, something different, we need to focus all the more intently on the truth that God has acted on behalf of righteous humanity to take punishment deserved on himself and restore all that was broken through the gracious work of Jesus Christ. As we do, I think there are two implications that we can see. First, let's all remember that if God can take the murder of his perfectly innocent son, the most unjust act that has ever occurred in human history, if he can take that and bring out of it all of the good that we have in the gospel, is there anything that he is not in control of. 
Is there any harm that would come our way that he cannot redeem? No, there's not. In the gospel, God has shown us that he can and that he will bring all things for good. Second thing I want us to remember, if you are in Christ, God is not angry with you. This punishment for sin has been paid fully, completely, forever. That means that you're free. You're free from shame and guilt. You're free from having to pretend that you're something that you're not. You're free from having to hide your sin like some small child trying to hide behind a bush thinking that God wouldn't see him. If this morning you are in Christ, you're trusting him, know that you are free. You see, the problem is when I forget the gospel and I forget the fact that I'm free in the gospel, I'm left trying to deal with my sin on my own, and that doesn't work. It's when we hold fast to the truth that God has taken the punishment that we're free to say, I've acted out of pride, not love. I was wrong. When we're free, it's then that we're free to say, I've judged others. I've held them up to a standard I can't keep myself, and then I punished them for not meeting it. We're free to say I've been greedy. We're free to say I've been divisive or gossiping. We're free to acknowledge our sin. And Lakewood, we are a bunch of sinners. Sinners saved by grace, yes and amen. But freedom will never be found in pretending that we're not sinners. Rather, freedom is found in being honest with ourselves about our sin, confessing it to God, confessing it to one another, and finding again the, fr- the forgiveness that God freely gives. Let's remember that punishment for sin has been paid. Let's step together all the more into the freedom of the gospel as we confess sin and strive toward holiness. We need anchors. Today, a week from now, six months from now, a decade from now, we need things that will hold fast in our lives. And the gospel is one of them. Let's cling to it, Lakewood, for his glory. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the story that it clearly tells us of creation, sin, salvation, and one day restoration. Strengthen us, God, by your spirit, by your word, through one another, that we might cling all the more fast to the anchor of the gospel, that we might look to you all the more in love, that we might find freedom to acknowledge our sin and find again forgiveness, knowing that you have already paid the price. We love you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus Christ, our salvation. Amen.